Well, this morning we continue in our series on the songs of Scripture, and we take up the second song, the song of Deborah, uh, which, as I'm sure you heard from the reading, is quite uh, exciting. Um, This is one of the earlier uh, actual texts of Scripture, and the Hebrew is quite beautiful, but also difficult to render in a lot of places. But in order to really understand what's going on in this song, we do need a little bit of backstory since we're being dropped into the middle of a book. Most of you, I think, are probably familiar, at least at some level, uh, with the cycle of the book, book of Judges, where the nation of Israel would do evil in the sight of the Lord. They would go after other gods, and then God would send an oppressor, some sort of enemy, to come and to put them under uh, their rule, and then Israel would live this hard life of service for a time, and finally they would remember the Lord, and they would cry out to Him for help, and God would raise up a deliverer who would come and rescue Israel and put them once again at peace until, of course, the cycle happened all over again. Well, our song this morning recounts one such deliverance, and it's a song as we see in the text that is sung by Deborah. So first I want us to begin this morning with the story. Uh, it's hard to understand the song without knowing the backstory, so I just want to give us a brief overview of the story that uh, gave rise to this particular tune that I'm sure you sing on the regular. Uh, Deborah, who was a prophetess, spoke the words of God to the people of Israel, was judging in Israel at the time, and she calls Uh, for a a particular man, Barak, that you've probably read about in Hebrews chapter 11, to lead God's people in war against their enemy, this man named Jabin at the time. Barak's a little shy. Uh, He says, I don't really want to go up, and I don't want to go up if you don't go up with us. And so Deborah acquiesces to his request and says, I will go with you, but if I go, just know that the glory of the battle will not be yours. It will be given to a woman instead. And of course, as the reader, we assume the woman that's going to get the glory is Deborah, but much to our surprise, it's a different woman altogether. And so Barak and Deborah go forth to war. They call out 10,000 men of Israel to go gather at Mount Tabor. And then Jabin sends his commanding officer, this man named Sisera, against Israel with 900 iron chariots, which to us may not sound like much, but this is the strongest artillery that exists at the time. And so you have this trained modern warfare against Israel, and maybe you heard it in the song, among 40,000 people, they couldn't find a sword or a dagger among them. They had no real artillery. So they're coming out, you know, with pitchforks and sticks against the world's, you know, greatest army, at least uh, facing them at this time. And we see Deborah say to Barak, go, for the Lord will go with you. And so by faith, he goes out believing what God has said. And the text in chapter 4 simply tells us that the Lord routed Sisera and Sisera fled on foot. We have no idea what happens until the song is sung that gives us some more background details. God, we will see, sent a storm And so Sisera flees on foot, and again, we have no explanation as to why. Uh, And he comes to the tents of Heber the Kenite, a man who had made a peace treaty with Jabin, the enemy. And so as he's approaching these tents of one that he is in treaty with, we think like, well, he's going to hide out here. And we learn that Heber's wife is there outside her tent, Jael, and she invites our great enemy Sisera in. She says, come, you know. 
And we assume, much like Sisera assumes, he's being invited in for safekeeping. And so here he is, winded and exhausted, and she offers him, you know, what anyone would offer someone who's extremely tired and thirsty and hot. He says, can I have some water? And she says, no, let's have some unrefrigerated, warm, thick milk instead. It will be delicious and you will feel refreshed. And so he drinks uh, these, uh, basically what is a yogurt type drink. Uh, and as he drinks it, in his exhaustion and now in his full stomach, he grows weary. And so he's asked Jael, hey, will you watch the tent? She says, oh, I'll definitely keep watch for you. No problem. Lay down. And he lays down and he goes to sleep. At which point we learn from the text that Jael picks up a mallet and a tent peg and drives it through his temple. And in one of the most understated Bible verses of all time, the text ends, so he died. Um, and he did. Uh, finally, after this event, Barak shows up, ready to do battle, uh, and instead he finds Sisera already lying there dead with a splitting headache. Um, so that's the story that gives rise to our song. And this is what they're singing about. And maybe that's a little uncomfortable uh, for you. A lot of times, even when we sing the Psalms in church, maybe you heard it this morning, there's lines in there that we just think like, they're so foreign. They're not modern. They talk about God's and God in ways that we're not super comfortable with. There's a lot of, you know, judgment and enemies and things that we don't usually bring front uh, to the fore. But that's exactly what's happening in this song. They're speaking about their triumph through God over their enemy. But more than that, the song interprets what happened. If we just have chapter four. We know that the story happened, but we have no idea how God views it and how he views each character in the story. But through the song, we get God's interpretation of the matter, and thus the way that we're to think of the matter. And so let's look at the song. And in it, we're going to see these two moms and one blessed woman. Deborah begins to sing about this day, and in her singing, she teaches us what we're to make of this day. And you'll notice she begins and ends her song with God's might that the Lord went out and he fought for us. And she ends with that, may all God's enemies perish. She tells us eventually that God sent a storm uh, and it's not, you know, uh, Baal, the God of Canaan that controls the storm. It's the God of Israel. And so he sends a great weapon against those who are riding in chariots. He sends water. Uh, and the one thing that chariots don't do well in is mud. And that's why we find Sisera on the run. And so we see God at the beginning and end of the story, and it's real clear from Deborah's singing that God's the one that routed the enemy, but that doesn't stop her from naming a few characters in the midst of the story. And she begins, with these, uh, she begins and ends with two mothers. First, Deborah calls herself a mother in Israel in chapter 5, verse 7. She said, I arose as a mother in Israel. She was a mother because she really did guide them. She taught them, you know, like children in God's way. She was a prophetess who spoke forth God's commands and word to them and guided them in the way they were to go. But she's not the only mom that we see in the text. You know, notice the text ends with Sisera, our enemy's mom, looking out her window, wondering where her boy is, wondering when he's going to come home from war. You know, why is he tarrying so long? Why are the chariots waiting? And we almost get these pangs of sympathy 
for any mom who sent their son out to war, almost, uh, until she finishes her statement. Uh, the singer of the song, Deborah, wants us to know exactly how we're to think of this mother. She says, you know what? I know why he's late, because he's out taking probably two wombs and then a bunch of other of the goods of our enemies, you know, and she's starting to think of all the nice embroidery that she's going to be able to put around her neck while her son rapes and pillages prior to his arrival back home. Uh, and in hearing that, that's supposed to do something to us. You know, what do we think of this mom? What we should think is the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. You know, we hated Sisera because of what he was doing to God's people. But now we learn that Sisera is just like his mom. He's, you know, uh, a child of this kind of woman, a woman who's okay with her son taking a womb or two before he steals all their goods. But we also see the tactic that Sisera is employing. You know, these are God's holy people set apart from the world, but not if this invading army comes in and each soldier takes the women of Israel or two and impregnates them. Now that holy seed has been polluted by the seed of Canaan and their uniqueness, their peculiar peopleness is all washed away. And so we see not only two mothers, we see that the author is putting before us two seeds, which should remind us of things as we go forward. Two different types of children arise from these two different types of mothers. We have Deborah teaching them the word of the God and trying to guide them in the way. And we have, you know, Sisera's mom <laughs> who gives rise to those who would seek to steal and to kill and destroy the people of Israel. And that's why our text ends, may your enemies perish and your friends rise like the sun, that there are these two types of people in the world that are being presented in stark contrast in the midst of this song. And we see who's who really in the tent scenario. That's where it all comes to a head, so to speak. Uh, Sisera has been shown to be ruthless. He takes advantage of the weak. He uses, if you will, all of his strength against an army that has hardly anything to show for it. And he takes advantage of those, uh, he, and he seeks to take advantage of their women, uh, which is a typical action for him. One that's so typical, his mom speaks of it loosely as if it's just another day of the week. He hopes to blot out Israel by making kids from their women in his own, his own image. You say... Jael, this woman in the tent, she does the work of warfare. I mean, how are we supposed to think of this woman? There's a lot about her uh, that should immediately make us question, or at least would make the ancient reader question her morality. You know, first, she, she breaks her husband's treaty. Her husband has sworn to Sisera's leader that I'm at peace with you, and so when she goes out there waving him in, she's waving a white flag and saying, come, you'll be safe in our home. We're at peace with one another. She lures a man in who thinks he has safe harbor within her tent. And I mean, putting it mildly, she breaks all the rules of being a good hostess. Um, 
this is not uh, what ancient Near Eastern hospitality is supposed to look like in the slightest. Uh, you don't need to know all the ins and outs uh, of uh, how they practice hospitality. Uh, the story of Lot should tell you a lot. When Lot's offering his own daughters in order to protect those that he's brought within his home, that's how important hospitality is in this culture. You don't have to know a lot to know that driving a spike through your guest's head while he naps is usually considered poor form uh, when it comes to this. But notice she lies to the liar. She deceives the deceiver, and then she crushes his head. And to top it all off, we learn that she's a Gentile. And in the midst of this text, we start to get clues about what we're going to see in the New Testament, that the seed of the woman doesn't mean you necessarily need to come genealogically through certain tribes of Israel. You can align yourself with the word that's being spoken by Deborah and the war that she's fighting on God's behalf. We see these two outcomes at the end of it all, right? We have two mothers, we have two seeds, and then two outcomes. May all of your enemies perish, O Lord, but your friends be like the sun. You know, the story is supposed to shock us. I mean, it's probably not what you got up this morning on a Sunday to hear about. Uh, yes, we're shocked because a man has a tent peg in his head, which is usually bad, um, but there's plenty of commentators that are shocked by the morality of the whole situation. By while well, those things may shock us, maybe the most shocking part of the text is how the Bible interprets its own story. In this song that the nation of Israel will sing, they'll be taught to sing these words. They'll teach their children to sing these words. They say concerning jail, most blessed of women be jail. This is who we should aspire to be. She's our kind of lady. <laughs> it teaches us how we're to interpret her actions. Most blessed of women. I mean, the Bible, whatever you may think of jail, the Bible thinks the world of her. And we know that by those words spoken and the next time that we'll hear them spoken. So if we've heard the story and now we've at least heard the, the basic uh, skeleton of the song. I want us to see finally this morning the salvation. I mean, how do we deal with this story, you know, this far forward in modern times? In order to understand it, you have to understand the story of the Bible. I mean, it's texts like these that remind us that the Bible is not written as some sort of collection of moral tales where we learn, you know, character instruction and then we just pass on Old Testament stories like Aesop's fables to our kids and say, now be like jail. <laughs> uh, and if a man sneaks in your tent, you know, you know what to do next, dear. Um, there's a reason why, you know, you don't usually see jail uh, on the flannel graphs in Sunday school. We don't know what to do with texts like these. How are we supposed to find a moral example in the midst of a story like this? It only makes sense when you remember the story that started it all. Where there was a man and a woman that lived in a holy space. Where they dwelt with God. And their job was to guard that space and to keep it pure. But instead, an intruder came into the garden and he was a deceiver and they listened to his lies. And for listening to their, his lies, they were sentenced to death and they were cast what seemed like irreparably from God's presence. But on the day of their demise, 
when they had done everything wrong, God spoke these words of promise into that situation. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring, and he shall bruise your head and you will bruise his heel. I mean, it's a cryptic saying. It seems strange, but notice there's a woman and her children, and they will be enemies with the serpent and his children, and there will be this war that continues all life long until the end of the world. And somehow, the child of the woman is going to eventually give an irreparable head wound to the child of the serpent. So when we encounter the situation here in Judges 4, we see God's holy people seeking to live holy in a land that are overrun by Canaanites, those who worship other gods, who deny the God of Israel. We see the seed of the serpent wounding the seed of the woman. We see even in those last telltale signs from Sisera's mom, they want to blot out the very nature of the seed of the woman and ultimately mix it with the seed of the serpent until there is no more genealogy of God's people. This is a holy war that's going on, and Satan will stop at nothing in this text, using Jabin and Sisera to undo God's people. So anything we encounter in this story is encountered in the context of a holy war that's been going on since the beginning that has a promise over it where God says, there is a child of the woman that's going to crush the head of the serpent. And the conclusion of this particular story is a woman taking up a hammer and nail and literally crushing the head of Israel's greatest enemy at the time. And that is why she is called most blessed among women. Because she's fighting God's fight for God's people against God's enemy. By surprise, she conquered the enemy. In her seeming weakness, you'll notice, she destroyed the destroyer. And in her guise, the beguiling enemy was ultimately beguiled and put to death. We will hear these words again. Blessed are you among women. I mean, that's what Elizabeth says to Mary when she walks in the room. And we immediately, our ears should be attuned to it and say, uh-oh, there's, there's holy war going on here. Something's just happened in this war that started so long ago between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. There's something about this kid in this womb that has something to say about this story that's been slowly traversing through the pages of Scripture. We have a young woman, a virgin, that says yes to God, just like Jael did. And we should hear those words of Elizabeth as a call to arms. There is a war at hand with what is in her womb. And though what she would bring forth looked weak and helpless compared to the powers that be. I mean, we have a child being born in a manger in Bethlehem with a family who hails from Nazareth. Can any good thing come from Nazareth? All the while, the greatest empire the world had ever known looms large on the scene and ultimately despises that child. And even the powers of Israel go after him. He seems weak and helpless compared to those powers, but he deceived the deceiver, not by nailing him to the ground, but by letting himself be pierced, nailed to a cross. This cross is just as unlikely as an instrument of success 
in the holy war as a housewife in a tent with a hammer and nail. <laughs> Especially, you know, the violence of the scene is not perpetrated on the enemy like we would think, but it's perpetrated on the sun. You notice in order to save us from death, he undergoes death. He is pierced out of deep love for his own sons and daughters to protect them from an enemy that has never shown them an ounce of mercy. I mean, the irony of our story is that Sisera, this man who would abuse women, who would take a womb or two, was taken down by a womb or two. That two women enter the story and they are his demise. And Satan, that great deceiver who brought death, is destroyed by death, by a death on a cross. I mean, we sing this song because we see how God wins in history through this song. And in one sense, it is our song. We're taking up the themes that we will sing concerning our own salvation, that the deceiver was deceived and by death, death was destroyed once and for all. To all those who would seek to destroy God's people and God's work, this song testifies to us that God always wins and his enemies will be shattered. A real judgment is coming. And if there's real evil in the world, that should be good news to us at one level. I mean, if there is no judgment, what do we make of things like Hitler and genocide? And, you know, you name all of the evils that have transpired in human history. They're countless. A real judgment is coming where every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is the king. And that enemy who seeks to steal and kill and destroy was defeated on that day on the cross and will ultimately be defeated by all those who love the Son. Isn't that interesting? Paul says to us, may the God of peace soon crush Satan underneath your feet. So that promise all the way back in Genesis 3 about a, a head being crushed, he says to the church, this female bride made up of largely Gentiles, soon God's going to crush Satan underneath your feet as well. God will judge his enemies. And while at one level we can affirm that, we also can affirm and must affirm that God is so merciful that he waits. He waited for you. He waited for you and he sought you and he found you, those who were born enemies of God, who did not love him, who did not care about his ways, who even now as his redeemed children sometimes can barely muster the energy to give him your best thoughts. And he promises that any who bow before his son now, before that great day, he will give them the right to be called sons of the Most High. They will be exalted and shine like the sun himself as he rises. But God always judges. He always judges the wicked. And he judged you by piercing his own son on a cross. And even as you came to him in faith, you died. And your life is now hidden with Christ and God.
God has punished every one of your sins. He didn't pass them over. He didn't ignore them. He truly poured out his wrath on them. And yet, and yet he did so in a way that the devil could have never seen coming. He did so by pouring out his wrath on his own son that you might live. And so we sing this morning because God has made us, those who are his enemies, his friends. By judging his son as an enemy in their stead. These are the strange and the weak ways of God that by death and resurrection we have become those who have been judged and raised in newness of life. And God does that every single day until the end of the age. Through the weakest things, through water being poured out over the head of a young woman, he claims she has now died and been judged in my son. And now she shines like the sun as a friend of the Most High. May we put our hope in him afresh this morning. Let us pray.